I think a lot of bloggers, as we've discovered with other legal liabilities that bloggers and people on social media face, are largely ignorant of the fact that they could be held liable for what they post. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from a very rainy Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from Massachusetts, where it's a beautiful autumn day. Uh, I write a blog for Law.com called Legal Blog Watch, and uh, also my own blogs, Media Law and Law Sites. And I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out, How to Get Sued. Um, Bob, today's show is sponsored by Clio, web-based practice management for lawyers at goclio.com and Landy Insurance for legal malpractice at landy.com. Well, Bob, this week's topic is an uh, interest to both you and I as bloggers, but uh, in a four to zero vote, the Federal Trade Commission approved new web guidelines pertaining to what's called guides concerning the use of endorsements and testimonials in advertising. When December 1st, 2009 rolls around, the Federal Trade Commission will look to regulate the web by having bloggers disclose the free products or payments they have received from companies for reviewing their products. These new guidelines for and the potential consequences for bloggers has created a quite a sense of uneasiness in the blogosphere. There's certainly been a lot of conversation about this uh, over the past week among bloggers, uh, legal bloggers in particular. Uh, I uh, have gone on record myself as saying that perhaps they're they're not quite as bad as some people have made them out to be, but uh, there's still uh, some cause for concern. Uh, but uh, today we'll hear from a couple of the experts uh, and look at uh, the FTC's new guidelines and, and uh, how they relate to blogs and uh, endorsements and advertising and sponsorships uh, and all of that. And our first guest today is Eric P. Robinson. He's a staff attorney at the Media Law Resource Center, which is a nonprofit information clearinghouse monitoring and promoting First Amendment rights in libel, privacy, and related fields of law. He previously worked at the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press and in staff positions for federal, state, and local elected officials. He also blogs on legal issues involving social media for Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Eric Robinson. Thank you. And next to join us today is attorney Barry J. Rheingold, a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Perkins Coie. He leads the firm's marketing and advertising practice. Uh, Barry counsels and litigates on behalf of advertisers, both on and offline. Barry has more than 25 years of experience as an antitrust and consumer protection litigator and counselor. He is a former assistant to the director of the FTC's Bureau of Competition and he joined Perkins Coie in 1981. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer Attorney Barry Rheingold. Thanks for inviting me. And, and let's just note that we uh, invited the FTC to be on this program, uh, and uh, uh, they were unable to uh, to do it uh, today. But uh, uh, Eric and Barry, I mean, I'd like to hear. Let's hear from each of you, uh, perhaps uh, on on your 
your take overall on, on these FTC guidelines. I know they were uh, working on them for some time. They had put them out for public comment and, and uh, they issued the final guidelines last week. And there's been a lot of conversation. Uh, Eric, uh, what's your what's your general impression of them? I think the, the FTC was trying to address some concerns it had about advertising and promotion. And although we're obviously talking about the consequences for bloggers, I, I almost think to some extent they're co- collateral damage, for lack of a better term, um, that its real target was in these new marketing techniques that are being used. It's called buzz marketing or social marketing. There are a few terms for it. Um, and I think that's what the FTC was trying to address. And in the course of that, it looked at blogs and some of the stuff that's going on in blogs. And obviously, that's gotten a lot of attention, especially in the uh, media you know, and Internet worlds. Uh, yeah, this is Barry. I agree with Eric's point. Um, you know, I think the real question for the FTC is sort of when is an ad an ad? And uh, is it obvious to consumers in today's market that an ad really is an ad rather than a sort of an endorsement by an independent consumer? Um, you know, the endorsement guidelines have been around since 1980, and they've always required the advertiser to disclose material connections with the endorse the person doing the endorsement. In the old days, when there was just a 30-second spot on TV, it was easy to, you, know, you knew who the advertiser was, and you knew the endorser was speaking on behalf of the advertiser. But when you're looking at consumer-generated media, um, it's not a, a, a top-down uh, communication. It appears to be sort of a bottom-up communication, and it's not quite clear who's, uh, whether there are advertisers behind that kind of consumer-generated media, and I think that was their concern. Well, what what is it uh, that the regulations uh, or the guidelines say uh, with respect to, to bloggers? Uh, Barry, maybe you could just fill us in on, on how these relate to bloggers. Well, it, it basically says that if you are endorsing a product and there is a material connection between you and an advertiser of the product, that has to be disclosed Uh Unless, uh, unless it's obvious to the uh, person reading the blog, uh, and that connection would have make a difference, make a material difference in the weight or credibility of the endorsement. Um, so, you know, I like to think of it as sort of three situations, hypotheticals. One is the bogus blog. Uh, you know, General Mills uh, sets up a blog uh, to talk about new kinds of cereal products. It doesn't identify the blog as being sponsored by General Mills. In fact, it's hired actors to, or you know, writers to sort of insert material. Then there's the um, what I would call a legitimate blog, but the blogger is actually receiving some kind of compensation. It can be cash, it can be other things to review the product and endorse it. And then you have what I call the pure independent blogger, someone who is out there, is not receiving anything from a manufacturer of a product, tries it, and on his or her own says, um, you know, this this has worked pretty well. The FTC wants to make sure that in the first two situations, consumers are aware that there is an advertiser standing behind the blogger. Uh, And the concern really is that uh, the FTC has gone as far as to say that free samples provided to a reviewer 
uh, a blogger reviewer can, under certain circumstances, um, be actionable, I mean, unless the fact that a freebie was given is disclosed. So there's a lot of controversy revolving around that point. But I think Eric is right that you know that's a small piece of a much sort of bigger issue. How does it fly then with uh, a book review? I mean, obviously, in order to get a book review, you get the book for free. Is that something that you need to disclose if you're a blogger? I don't think so because, uh, well, number one, a lot of the book reviews occur after the book is already out. Um, but number two, the uh, consumers, I think, understand that you know, uh, books are given out free to reviewers. Uh, it's just sort of the way the publishing industry works. And uh, the reviewers, you know, it's hard to believe that their opinion of the book is affected by the fact that they got a freebie. And a book's not also, it's not a very valuable thing, too. So it's not as if a free car is given out to the people who write articles about car reviews. I think a lot, uh, one of the things that the FTC has talked about is, you know, high-end, relatively high-end, a few hundred dollars electronics, um, you know, cell phones, that, those sorts of things, game systems. There have been uh, some uh, FTC officials have been trying to clarify some of these rules since they were issued um, in response to the firestorm. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure that uh, books would be excluded, to be honest with you, because there was some discussion of, well, if the blogger returned the books, then it would be okay and they wouldn't have to disclose. So, by making statements like that, um, there's an implication, at least, that um, that might be covered by these by these new rules. How in God's name are they going to be able to enforce this? I mean, well, that, the inter- I, that that's one of my the problems I have with some of these rules is that they don't uh, they're they're very written at a very theoretical level, and they don't. Uh, take into account the practical realities of how how these things actually occur in the real world, both in terms of how companies market their uh, products and also in terms of how bloggers operate. Um, and I think that's been one of the uh, major reasons for the reaction that a lot of bloggers have had to it that it just doesn't reflect the reality that they're that they're working in. Yeah, I think one of the reasons for concern is that the rule the rules themselves are very broad and you know frankly kind of scary. And the FTC has been telling people, well, you know, that's true maybe, but we're going to be really when you look at our enforcement actions we're going to be pretty conservative. They've, they've been sending out that signal. So what that means to me is that the enforcement actions are probably going to be brought against advertisers before they'll be brought against the endorsers, the bloggers, because the advertisers are the ones who initiate the process that leads to the, the blog, and, the, uh, and they bear the risk. I think bloggers are going to have a problem in you know a relatively small number of cases, and I think they're going to come up only where the blogger is an important player in a a, 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 a network marketing program, you know, a formal network marketing program set up by the advertiser. And if you're participating in that on a regular basis, if you're helping organize that, whether or not you're getting cash, um, yeah, you might find yourself the target of an FTC investigation. But the blogger doing a one-off review of 
a product, even a product he receives from the manufacturer, is probably not going to have to worry too, too much. That, that's, my, that's my take on it. In an FTC spokesperson said this week that they were not going to go after bloggers. Uh, he said the, the quote, we have never brought a case against a consumer endorser and, we're, and we've never brought a case against somebody simply for failure to disclose a material connection. Uh, but it seems that one of the areas that there's a lot of uh, uh, misunderstanding regarding the FTC enforcement of this is is in this area of uh, a potential fine uh, for violating the guideline. There, there's been this number thrown around out there of of eleven thousand uh, dollars, which which is uh, not in the guideline. And I, I mean, my understanding is is the FTC couldn't impose a fine, could they? Wouldn't they have to go to court and bring an enforcement action in court and, and ask a judge to do that? Uh, you know, procedurally, uh, I mean, what would happen is that the FTC would bring an action to get an injunction to prevent any further false advertising in the in the form of a violation of these guidelines. So it's an injunction that they're asking for. If, in addition to failing to disclose the material connection, the endorsement is part of a false, serious false advertising violation like promoting a bogus cancer cure. The FTC could go into court and try to get a constructive trust placed around the money being paid by the consumers and get them a consumer refund. But that means you know, you're not, it's not simply a fact of not disclosing the material connection. It's that it was, this was part of a much more serious false advertising problem that took money out of people's pockets. So, so reports that say that somebody who violates these guidelines could be subject to a, and a lot of them use this $11,000 figure. I mean, that's just dead wrong. Yeah, it's $16,000. It went up a few months ago, but that, that's dead okay. wrong. They, they would be subject or could be subject to an injunction preventing future, barring future violations. If they violated that order, they would then be subject to penalties of $16,000, up to $16,000 per violation. How does this play into the issue of ethics and First Amendment speech? How do the two of those fit together with with these rules? Well, that I mean, that's one question here: is is this should this be a legal issue that the FTC is at least potentially, I guess, could enforce against bloggers, or should it be a matter of of ethical rules? Um, one of um, the Notable things about these guides, these guides, and they are guides, um, is that they the FTC makes a specific statement about not holding traditional media to the same standard or, or to the same guide because traditional media, in their estimation, have standards and have internal processes to. Um, to uh, limit or disclose any benefits that they receive from uh, makers of products that they're talking that they're reviewing. Um, I'm not sure that's the case in in all circumstances, but that is uh, an assumption that the FTC makes. Well, it certainly makes sense. I mean, a newspaper uh, would have a, a policy uh, not to accept. Uh, you know, not to allow its reporters to take free gifts. Uh, 
And, uh, uh, you know, if it did get something for a review, I mean, most newspapers would have a policy regarding what has to happen to that item, that product, whatever it is that they've obtained uh, after the review is written. Uh, my, my problem with that, however, is that some, I mean, look, the, the daily, the major daily newspapers and that we could all name do have such policies and do have such ethics rules. But some smaller newspapers, weekly newspapers, small community newspapers might not have the same standards. And I, I think it's a big presumption on the FTC's part to assume that just because something is a print publication versus an online publication, for example, that they have standards in place to uh, place limits on that. And, and how are these disclosures supposed to look on a blog? I mean, what, what is it that we're, th- we're expecting to see? Is there a standard form? Is there language that the FTC wants to see? Do they want it in a box? Is it to be at the top or the bottom? Or just words to say, I got this free and, and I'm reviewing it? What are they supposed What are bloggers? What's, where's the safe harbor here? Yeah, well, there is no safe harbor in the sense of proposed sort of language for the disclosure. It's going to turn on the nature of the blog. But frankly, I, I expect to see a lot of creativity on the part of the blogging community and, frankly, a lot of, uh, you know, frankly, humor. I think these disclosures are going to be a riot um, when people sort of come and fess up that they got a freebie, whether it's a book or a toy or, a, you know, a baby diaper. Um, yeah, they'll be there, but, you know, they'll be, co- they'll be couched in a way that is probably sort of, you know, funny. That's, my, that's what I expect to see after December 1. And one question, which isn't really, I mean, the, the, the short answer is that there's no specific language, there's no specific uh, magic words that the FTC is saying, put this in your blog and you'll be fine. Um, but I could see questions, again, uh, whether they go after bloggers or not, um, I could see questions of, does it have to be next to your review of the product, or can it be a standard disclaimer at the bottom of the page? Things, things like that uh, could, you know, and I'm sure there will be creative and maybe uh, humorous solutions to this. Barry, what about uh, you represent advertisers? Uh, what obligations uh, or responsibilities do these guidelines impose on advertisers who will be engaged in uh, you know, using social media as part of their advertising campaigns? Well, it puts, it puts the advertisers uh, in a very, very vulnerable situation. I mean, the advertiser goes down this road of using uh, consumer-generated media to get the message out there, but he's using writers over whom the advertiser has no control. So the guidelines, under the guidelines, the advertiser is supposed to, in essence, sit down with the uh, the blogger and instruct him or her what has to be disclosed. You know, when you issue, when you publish this review, you've got to disclose that I gave you the freebie or, you know. um, And the advertiser is also on the hook if, number one, that disclosure isn't made by the endorser, but number two, if the endorser just sort of, you know, goes rogue and starts making claims for the product that are, you know, unsupported. Uh, You know, at a minimum, the advertiser has to discontinue working with that blogger. But there's an open question as to whether the advertiser has to go further to uh, inform the public that those claims made by the blogger are are simply untrue. That brings up the the question of how this whole thing got started. What what prompted these kind of rules? What abuses have been out there that that's the FTC said we need to get a handle on this? Uh, well, as I 
as I mentioned before, um, part of the concern was the development of this uh, advertising vehicle known as Buzz Marketing, which started with sending people to bars, for example, to recommend a particular drink, a particular brand of, you know, uh, vodka or whatever, um, and you know, and grew from there. Um, that's one concern, and also. The FTC, in developing these rules, also cited um, studies uh, about uh, dietary supplements and, you know, uh, vitamins and medical devices um, that had uh, not false claims and also uh, used. were non, not necessarily obviously advertisements, and that was that was kind of the root concern that led to these rules being developed. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that you know the FTC reads Ad Age daily, uh, Advertising Age daily. Um, they read the trade press uh, from Madison Avenue. They, un- they they read about astroturfing. They read about blog advertising agencies that actually, you know, go out there and help you create sort of a network of supporting, a blog supporting your your product. So they know what the industry is doing. And it was really just a question as to, you know, when they kind of caught up with the industry and, you know, now they have. One thing I, I just think we need to note that we've been talking about blogs a lot, but these rules apply to all forms of social media. They apply to t- Twitter and you know, sites like Facebook and MySpace and any kind of social media. It's not just blogs that we're talking about here. That's just important to note. Yeah, and I think when, you, when you're talking about Twitter, you're talking about really the, the truly ungovernable type of communication. I mean, if you're setting people loose on Twitter to promote your product, you're really letting, um, you're letting sort of the mice out of the barrel. I mean, you can't control where they go and what they do. And the other question with Twitter is, how do you even do a disclosure in, right. in 140, 140 characters? Mm-hmm. Right. right. We need to take a short break right now, uh, but uh, stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute to talk more about the FTC's new guidelines. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Protect your legal practice with Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency and feel confident that your professional liability insurance provides the best possible coverage for the best possible price. Whether you are establishing a new firm, adding an attorney to your team, or exploring new options for your existing firm, Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency can match your specific needs with experience unmatched in the industry. Visit us at www.landy.com for a convenient online application or call us at 800-336-5422 for prompt and personal attention. Your practice deserves the best. 
Want to tell a national audience about your latest successful verdict or large settlement case? We'll produce a video interviewing the prevailing attorney and distribute it online on the Legal Talk Network. Put the video on your firm's website, too. Call us at 781-551-9960. That's 781-551-9960. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're back with Eric P. Robinson, who's a staff attorney at the Media Law Resource Center, and attorney Barry J. Reingold, who's a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Perkins Coie. Well, what do you think this is going to do to bloggers? You, I know, um, Barry, you said that you thought that the disclosures are going to be more funny and more humorous, but do you think it's going to cause them to pull back? Is this going to have a chilling effect? You know, I, I'll go out on a limb and say I don't think it's going to have much of an effect on bloggers. You know, when the, you know, when the, when the smoke clears, um, the folks who are doing this on a regular basis uh who had established relationships with product suppliers. You know, you give me a, a new release of every game that comes out, and I'll review it. Yeah, though, you know, there's a small number of such people, but, yeah, they will have to make the disclosure. But the people who are just, you know, reviewing products on their own, submitting some comments, people who got, like, one freebie in the mail, um, you know, cheap freebie in the mail and write about it, it's not going to affect them. But people who are doing this on a regular basis with established relationships with advertisers, yeah, they'll have to make some disclosures, and they'll do it in, I think, a sort of humorous way. So my my prediction is not not much of a real impact after everybody calms down. I, I agree with that, but I I have two other reasons why I think that's the case. Uh, one is I think the advertisers who have much more at stake here are going to either pull back from these relationships or tell the people, the, the social media people that they're dealing with what they have to do to not run afoul of this because they're, the advertisers are, are going to be on the hook uh, more than the bloggers are probably. That's number one. And number two, I think a lot of bloggers, as we've discovered with other legal liabilities that bloggers and people on social media face, are largely ignorant of the fact that they could be held liable for what they post. You know, there are cases coming up all the time, but a lot of people who do this are not aware of them or not cognizant of the fact that stuff you put online could lead to legal liability. And I think that will lead people to just continue what they've been doing unless some unless they somehow become aware of these rules. Yeah, I think it's, it's useful just to identify the one case the FTC has brought so far that I'm aware of to see just how egregious a set of facts it takes before the FTC is really going to get involved. And that was, my recollection is, it was a woman who had a blog who said, you know what, I found this marvelous cure for my, you know, my... Um, asthma. I mean, whatever it is. I found this thing. It's great. I took three pills and it's gone. Wow. It's really made the difference in my life. And then she was so... People could go to a website and then buy these pills. Well, number one, she owned the website and she was the manufacturer of the pills. Never disclosed. Number two, the pills were bogus. So not only was there a failure to disclose the connection between the endorser and the company, but, you know, this was just, you know, like sugar, sugar water. So they were, you know, she was, in essence, uh, cheating people of thousands and thousands of dollars. So the FTC jumps in there. 
But that's you know, a pretty egregious case. And are they going to go a lot further than that in the enforcement of these rules? I'd be surprised if they went a lot further than that kind of set of facts. But but one of the criticisms of the guidelines is that they are so vague. And, and I mean, you're somebody who practices in this area, and, and you you know from experience uh, what's likely to come down the pike. But I mean, the FTC guidelines cite the example of a you know a kid who writes a, a gaming blog and, and gets a, a free gaming system to uh, review and and should and should disclose that. Uh, so I mean, does the FTC have an obligation, perhaps, to the to the consumer? to consumers or to the public to to be a little bit clearer here about what's expected? Well, you know, I I hate to say it. I think that's really Eric's uh, bailiwick. Uh, you know, the vague... Eric? <laughs> Eric, un- yes, it, it's, it's vague. It's, it's unconstitutional for vagueness. is a constitutional First Amendment kind of issue. And I, I guess I'm curious what his views are. Well, I think they intentionally kept them vague uh, because they wanted... Uh, because it is so fact specific these situations i mean they give examples um and as and as we mentioned before these are guides they aren't technically rules in the sense that uh, agencies normally adopt rules which if you violate the rule you're you know you, you could have an enforcement action against you uh that's why these are explicitly called guides and that's why they provide examples to kind of make it more concrete. Um, but I think to some extent there's a you-know-it-when-you-see-it quality to the to to this. Um, and that could be one, obviously, could be one ground for uh, a, a challenge to these rules, that they're just too vague. Is there a First Amendment challenge in the offing? Well, I, I, I mean, I blogged about this. I, I had another theory that even if you assume that this is uh, advertising and commercial speech, which has less protection under Supreme Court precedent, um, that um, they have they, the, the 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 government has to show that it has a substantial government interest, and that the rules that it's imposing are not more excessive than extensive than necessary to promote that interest, um, and. As I mentioned before, there's this distinction in the guides between social media and traditional media, and I think that creates a vulnerability uh, because why are these rules being applied to one form of media and not another? And uh, Barry, what do you think if such a challenge is brought? What do you think the chances are it will succeed? Um. I tend to think it will. The, the rules will survive a challenge. Um, you know, I'm not nearly as familiar with the law concerning commercial speech, First Amendment law and commercial speech, as Eric is. But you know, my understanding of it is that the thresholds are not terribly high for the government when they're talking about protecting the public from false advertising. You know, not all speech is protected speech, and um, this, though, you know, this is on the edge. But I, I, I would predict that a court of appeals would probably say that these guidelines, number one, are not rules. Number two, as guidelines, they're within the agency's discretion. That's sort of that's my my sort of seat of the pants. Another, another another legal theory that I've seen bandied about, um, primarily by uh, Eric Goldman, who's a professor out in uh, California, uh, is that. Uh, 
not to bring in a whole new body of law here, but uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which has to do with liability of what's called internet service providers by people who post uh, material. He's making makes an argument that Section 230 would would that any uh, enforcement of these rules would violate Section 230. I'm not sure I agree with that, but. It's a definitely an interesting argument he makes. Well, we are about out of time for today's program, but before we conclude the program, we do like to give each of you an opportunity to conclude with your closing thoughts on the topic. And uh, also, if you would like to, let our listeners know how they can follow up with you. Uh, so, Eric, let's start with you. Um, well, I want to thank you for inviting me to be on. Um, and uh, I want to thank uh, Barry for uh, being on as well. Um, and... Uh, you know, bloggers, I think, in general, need to realize that uh, there can be legal consequences to what they do online. Now, the FTC might not be in, might not pursue these rules specifically against bloggers, um, except in extreme circumstances. But it's definitely something that bloggers should be aware of, and that's something that we've been trying. The message we've been trying to get out to people who do use social media. That it's important that they realize that. Um, our website is www.medialaw.org. Uh, we have a bunch of materials um, relating to internet and online, including uh, a database of lawsuits against bloggers, ones that have been won and lost uh, that people might be interested in taking a look at. Thanks. And Barry Rangel, your final thoughts? Um, I think we're seeing something like the closing of the West in 1890. Um, you know, the the internet has been the wild west uh, in terms of you know freedom of communication, un, unfettered, unvarnished um, freedom of communication, and we're seeing um, law come in. We're seeing fence posts. We're seeing you know fences, and I think um, these rules more than anything I've seen before are a sign that uh, that world has changed. And I think the bloggers are going to have to recognize that, but it's going to take a while because I think, as Eric noted, you know, most of them proceed in blissful ignorance of the law. They're just out there pounding away. You know? uh, our firm's um, privacy internet practice has a blog called digestiblelaw.com. Uh, we update it on a regular basis with... Uh, bulletins and articles about uh, any number of different subjects in the internet privacy security advertising arena. So I would suggest anyone who wants to sort of get a quick handle on what's happening, just check out our blog. And uh, anyone who wants to follow up with me, uh, certainly I would love to talk to you. My telephone number is 202-434-1613 or bryanagold at perkinscooey.com. Uh, and again, thanks for the invitation. And thank you, gentlemen, for being on the show today. Well, Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. For our listeners, remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows on LegalTalkNetwork.com. And we're also in the podcast library on iTunes. A uh, special thanks to our guests for taking the time to share their thoughts with us today. Uh, Craig, I look forward to talking to you next week with another great legal topic. We'll be back then. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.